This is the 2015 Ontario Winter Bible School. Our speaker for this second session is Brother Marco Grady from Tawa, New Zealand. His theme this week is One in Christ Jesus, Complementary Roles. This is his second class, and the subject for this class is Sisters in Service. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Well, this morning we're going to recognise the role of sisters in our community. Not in a role as wives or as mothers, but as a crucial part of how our community is able to function and operate. We're going to look at their special place as sisters in Christ, part of the ecclesia of the living God. Now we find that scripture completely, it just abounds with wonderful examples of women of exceptional faith. And we're going to call in this morning and meet some of them briefly. And we're going to draw some excitation and some understanding from looking at the way in which they conducted themselves in their daily life. Their faithful service in so many delightful ways. But I'd like to start first of all with a a brief recap of what we looked at in our first study, some of the foundation principles. First of all, we found in Genesis chapter 1 that men and women were both created with the same likeness and image of the Elohim. They share the same relationship with God. They live by exactly the same principles, all one in Christ Jesus. They have, however, been created with different roles, one with a focus on leadership and the other on assisting in that work. This relationship, we found, has been invented by or designed by God as part of him filling the earth with his glory. The relationship, of course, has its counterpart in the relationship between God, who is the creator, and the human race, who are there as his helper or as his counterpart, his people. And that's why we find that God's people are so often described in female terms. Cities, the nation of Israel, the daughters of Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, the bride of Christ, etc. Uses the analogy of a female role to describe the relationship between God's people uh, and himself as the creator. So this morning, as we look at the, 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 the selfless devotion of many sisters in scripture, their dedication we find epitomised the principles that should govern all of us in our relationship with God and with Christ. So we're actually going to be looking at attributes which should characterise us as a community today. Interesting point, by the way, there's a little reflection that many of these characteristics are not characteristics of God. And that's quite an interesting thought to think about, isn't it? Submission. Meekness. Teachableness. Reflecting the glory of another, being a servant. These are not attributes of God. They're attributes of human beings who are created to reflect the honour and glory of the great creator himself. It's the spirit of people who are suitable to be able to work together with him. Now brothers, we're going to find that that's a particular challenge for us because some of these characteristics do not come naturally to us. And sure, we can say, well, yes, these are are role models for our sisters to aspire to, but actually it's much more encompassing than that. It really defines the attitude and the attributes which should be found in all of us as a community of believers today. It's the exemplar of what we all have to transform to being like. Okay, well, let's begin with a simple little word, and it's the word service. If we think of the ways, all the the myriad of ways in which sisters make such a difference, day by day, in their care, their love, and their compassion for many people. Eyes that notice. Sympathy that understands. Hearts that care. And hands that help. When you think about it, it's all summed up in that little word, service. And in ecclesial life, the attribute which we see, where we see most often demonstrated that spirit of selfless service is so often in our sisters. And it doesn't matter what sphere it's in. 
It could be mums looking after their children. It can be Sunday school teaching. It could be providing food for the ecclesia, Dorcas class activities, calling in to support those who need it, a hand outstretched in sympathy when support is needed, a regular text, staying in contact, that little bit of compassion, the hand reaching out, all of those little unseen things in ecclesial life. So often we see that word service written very large letters across the myriad of activities that our sisters are engaged in day by day. Now there is quite an irony in this fact that the very things in the life of our sisters that this world despises, it despises precisely because they are service roles. And this world aspires to being the master and not the servant. That's why the world despises the role of our sisters in ecclesial life. But you know, in the eyes of God, a service role is not a second-rate role. And we need to get this extremely clear in our mind. The role and the function of service is highly esteemed in Scripture. Because it involves us putting somebody else's needs in front of my own. And so service is held up as something for us to aspire to in Scripture. Think about these words. Thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all thy heart and soul and strength and might, and thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. And that's the spirit, brothers and sisters, that elevates the subject above the mundane, because we find that hidden in this topic is actually the spirit of Christ himself. It's not that it's a menial role. It's a Christ-like role. Think of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 13, verse 13. Ye call me Master and Lord, ye say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Or again, and these are very compelling words, Matthew 20, verse 27 to 28. This is the Lord speaking again, and he says, Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to minister unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. When he says the Son of Man came to minister, the word minister literally means to be a servant. So here's the Lord Jesus Christ telling us that he came to give his life as a servant. Brothers and sisters, if our Lord came to be a servant, then how should we personally approach this topic? Where does that place us? It means that we look around the hall this morning and we see our brothers and sisters, or we we go on a Sunday morning to our own ecclesias, and we look around the hall and we see all our brothers and sisters, and, and we say, well, actually, these... These are the people that I've been called to be a servant to. So how am I going to do that? How can I show that spirit? How can I demonstrate service towards my brothers and sisters? And service is something for us to aspire to, but it doesn't come naturally to any of us because it's the exact opposite of what the flesh itself delights in. And often the best examples of it in ecclesial life are to be found in the example of our sisters, because we often see a willingness to spend themselves for the sake of others. Now, by temperament, they have some natural advantages. They are more sympathetic. They are more caring. And actually, they're a wonderful illustration of what we're all called upon to become in Christ, a helper as his counterpart. All right, well, let's see some of these characters in action. I'd like you to come with me to Luke and chapter 8. This is a rather remarkable feature of the Lord's ministry as referred to in Luke chapter 8. It's the beginning of the chapter. Luke 8 and commencing at verse 1. It came to pass afterward he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, 
and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. And here we have a rather remarkable feature of the Lord's ministry. There is this little faithful band of sisters who followed with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road. Now these are people who were motivated by a deep and abiding gratefulness, a thankfulness for what he had done for them. I mean, we take the example here of Mary Magdalene, out of whom he'd cast or sent seven devils. We know that devils or demons are used as an expression of mental illness. Seven of them, this poor woman was totally raving mad. And the Lord had saved her from complete shame and degradation. And she dedicated her life to serving him in response. Now, this little group of faithful sisters traveled with the Lord in the way. Now, let's put it in a context. In the very next chapter, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 58, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now, let's just consider the implications for the Lord of this. Day by day in his journey, the strain of never having a place to call home. And yet our Lord was called upon to achieve the greatest work of all time. In fact, the entire plan of salvation for the whole human race depended on what was accomplished in those three and a half years of the Lord's ministry. And it would have been impossible were it not for the work of a group of faithful sisters who looked after him in his daily need and supported him in that work. The record says they ministered to him out of their substance. Is the spirit of selfless giving of themselves. And what made it possible for the Lord to function was the special provision that he had given of a group of sisters who were there to minister to the Lord's daily wants. Like, who provided lunch and dinner? Who provided clothes for him? Who organised a room for him to stay in each night? Who gave him the support and the sympathy that he needed? Consider this too. You know, it's truly commendable for sisters to show hospitality from their own homes. Try and do it like these sisters did a long way from home base, travelling on the road themselves for something like up to two years as they travelled with him in his ministry. It's an extraordinary example of selfless dedication. Because these women didn't leave him, they actually travelled with him on his journeys. We know that because at the crucifixion, in Luke 23 and verse 49, the record says, And the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, watching him as he died. And the record's making the point. It's the same group of faithful sisters. They're not just there in Luke 8. The record tells us they followed him. They were there at the foot of the cross. At his burial, we know they were there. At his resurrection, they were there. In fact, they were the first to hear the news. And one of them was even the first to see the risen Lord. Those sisters then became witnesses even to the disciples themselves of his resurrection. And when the disciples were struggling to believe it, those sisters were witnessing to them about the risen Lord. We know from the story of the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24 and verse 22, it describes certain women that were of our company. What an extraordinary expression, of our company. They were part of that little core knit group that was there with the Lord, supporting him all the way through. That's the spirit of selfless dedication which characterizes a true servant of the Lord. And those sisters from these passages act like a beacon for all of us of what selfless dedication in ecclesial life actually involves. And they were provided by the Father as a crucial element in the support network that actually enabled our Lord to accomplish the work of salvation that he was sent to achieve. The Lord was able to function in his work of redemption. The plan of salvation for the human race was supported by God's provision of those sisters. You know what that means? It means that we owe them a debt of gratitude for what they did for our Lord. We should never underestimate the significant and often unseen benefit that flows from little actions of support, administering of care and comfort. 
Now, if we want to see that rather powerfully demonstrated in life today, one of the best places to see it is in the home. So, brothers, those of us who are in a home with a wife, who was also a mother, you know, as life goes on, it's busy, it's busy way. The endless cycle of daily life. So often the little things just go unnoticed, unobserved, and sadly, often unappreciated. Who dropped the children off at school this morning? And what would have happened if she hadn't been able to do it? Little Annie's school bag had lunch in it. Who provided the lunch? And when little Annie got up this morning and couldn't find her dress, how did mum know that it just happened to be hanging up in the laundry? Well, because at half past ten last night she couldn't go to bed until she'd finished washing yesterday's mud off Annie's little dress so that it would be available for Annie to wear again this morning. You know, husbands, fathers, it's important for us to stop and notice and actually take the time to say thank you. Thank you, dear. It's appreciated. All those little things in home life. And then perhaps even get up and lend a hand. You know, this concept of service, brothers and sisters, is so powerfully demonstrated by our sisters. Now, it wasn't just Christ who benefited from such labours of love. Who was the other great preacher of the gospel in the New Testament? The one who took the gospel, as it were, to us Gentiles? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a single man who trod the weary path around the world, preaching the gospel to those who would hear. And once again, the work of the Apostle Paul would have been impossible were it not for a band of faithful sisters and and brothers as well who laboured to support him in that work. Now I'd like you to come with me to Romans chapter 16 because there is a, a concentrated list in Romans 16 of sisters who had been supporting the work of the Apostle Paul and also ecclesial life in general. Romans chapter 16, let's start with verse 1. I commend unto you Phoebe our sister which is... A servant of the Ecclesia, which is at Sincrea. Just imagine having that on the epitaph after you passed away. This person was the servant of the Ecclesia in your area. What a magnificent statement to make about this particular sister. That ye receive her in the Lord, as becometh saints, that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. What an extraordinary demonstration. Just imagine, sisters, if your personal name had been written in one of Paul's epistles with that that sort of description. She has been a succorer of many, and of myself also. Brothers, I wonder, I wonder if we'd been in Paul's position, whether we would, would have actually taken the time to notice and appreciate and, and even sit down and mention her help for us when we were sitting down writing the important epistle to the Ecclesia in Rome. The Apostle Paul never lost his appreciation for the work that sisters did in ecclesial life. Verse 6. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labour on us. Aren't those words brief? We have no idea, just no idea, what the brief labour was the Apostle was referring to. Was it support? Was it providing meals? Was it helping him in some other... We don't know. But what we do know is the Apostle Paul appreciated this much labour which had been bestowed on us. Let's have a look at verse 12. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labour in the Lord. Again, another statement about sisters who labour faithfully and are listed here as a result. All right, let's go back now and read verses 3 and 4. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the ecclesias of the Gentiles. Then in verse 5, likewise greet the ecclesia which is in their house. And it's worth us spending a few moments now looking at the, the rather remarkable example of Priscilla and Aquila. They are a remarkable couple. She was a truly remarkable sister. They were both 
possessed of most wonderful spiritual minds. They were capable of teaching the truth to some of the greatest brains that the first century Ecclesia saw. Even Apollo, Apollos himself, the great uh, orator that was involved in preaching the truth together with the Apostle Paul. He was taught the truth by Aquila and Priscilla. Here we can tell from verse 4 when it says they have for my life laid down their own necks that clearly they've done some things at considerable personal risk to themselves to help the Apostle Paul. Now, a very interesting feature of Scripture is that when we have a list of names mentioned, the order of the names is, is significant. And we find that the names that are mentioned first in the list are, are always mentioned first for a particular reason. And here is a rather curious thing. Because often when we have Aquila and Priscilla mentioned, we find that Priscilla's name comes first. In fact, it's about half and half. There is some discrepancy in some of the manuscripts, so there's a little bit of a debate from time to time between the different ones, but we find approximately half of the time Aquila's name comes first, the man, and half the time Priscilla, the wife, her name comes first. Now, in evangelical churches, those who want to to change the, the scriptural teaching on the role of women, they grab hold of this with alacrity. Of course, they just gently ignore the weight of the rest of scripture. And they grab passages like this and they grind them beyond their elastic limits to say, well, look, Priscilla's name comes first. She becomes the leader. In fact, I've read some material which suggests that Priscilla, and you may not have been aware of this, but Priscilla was the bishop of the ecclesia at Ephesus. I mean, they take little passages and they grind them way beyond their elastic limits. Uh, Brother (coughs) Colin Burns, in his book, um, which I think the title is God, Christ, Man, Woman, he has a little phrase in there which I think is absolutely brilliant. He said they make much of little and little of much. In other words, they take one little passage and they make this huge big case around what they think this one little passage means. And then they completely ignore the vast weight of scripture. They make much of little and little of much. It's a little bit of a sidetrack, but one of the ones that really intrigued me was, did you know that there were women apostles? I was reading an article that was talking about all these women apostles. I thought, whoa, this is interesting. Oh, there's scriptural proof. Scriptural proof. So you go, read further. Well, there's one passage. Now, that one passage happens to also be here in Romans chapter 16. Uh, Let's have a look. Verse 7. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles. Now, Junia is a female name of note among the apostles. She must have been one of the apostles. There's scriptural proof that some of the apostles were women. Well, there's a few problems with that. First of all, in many manuscripts, it actually says Junius, which is male. Apart from that, even if it was Junia, it simply says they're of note among the apostles. And the Greek reads exactly the same as the English. It simply means that amongst the apostles, they were held as being of note doesn't mean they were actually one of the apostles. And yet that's the passage which is ground out to say that there were women apostles as well as men and therefore women should lead in ecclesial life. That's what Brother Colin was talking about when he talked about making much of little and little as much. All right, let's go back to, uh, to Priscilla. Uh, they particularly note the passage in Acts chapter 18 and verse 26 when it talks about Aquila and Priscilla taking Apollos and expounding unto him the way of God more perfectly. And they say, well, there we are. There's Priscilla involved in teaching Apollos. If that was possible, then, then, then women should be able to lead in exhortations and so forth today as well. It's particularly the case because in some manuscripts, although the AV has Aquila's name first in Acts 18 verse 26, there are some manuscripts which have it the other way around. So there's a little bit of uncertainty about it in the record. I actually believe the the manuscripts used by the AV are correct because of the context of it, as we'll see a a bit later on. But there is no doubt that in some places Priscilla's name does come first. So what's the answer? Why is that? Well, I think there's actually a rather lovely answer. This couple took the Apostle Paul into their home. Initially, of course, because he was a tent maker, so he abode with them. They worked together. But they quickly learned and accepted the truth from the Apostle Paul. Now, that became the beginning of a rather extraordinary era in which this couple worked with the Apostle Paul and travelled with the Apostle Paul 
from city to city in a number of places, and they helped establish ecclesias. First of all, they provided loving care and assistance, practical assistance to Paul. Then, when he left Corinth, they actually followed with him to support him in that work. They had originally moved actually from Rome to Corinth. Now they followed Paul from Corinth to Ephesus. Later, they moved back to Rome for a period of time, and then they returned back to Ephesus again. And their home, both in Ephesus and in Rome, and back in Ephesus again, became a haven for the ecclesia. We referred to before, in this little epistle to the Romans, to the ecclesia, which meets in their house. So their home became a haven for the truth. Now note this carefully. That when the couple originally left Rome to settle in Corinth, when the couple send joint salutations... When it speaks of the ecclesia meeting in their house, when they tutor Apollos, Aquila's name comes first. But when they travel with Paul to support him in that work, and when Paul sends greetings to them, Priscilla's name comes first. And I believe that that implies that she took a lead role in their support for the apostle. A bit like the Shunammite woman prevailed upon her husband to build a place for Elisha, the man of God, to come and stay. And I think what we see here, brothers and sisters, is the Apostle's appreciation for the nurturing care and love and support which was shown by her in supporting for his needs practically when he was living with them. But note this, in every single occurrence, without exception, they are always listed together. You never read of Priscilla heading off and doing this or that. They always work together and appear together in scripture as a couple. And I think that's a key point. She's always there with her husband. And you know another rather remarkable thing? The meanings of their names. Do you know what Aquila and Priscilla means? Does anyone know what Aquila means? We get the expression aquiline, yes? Eagle. Eagle. Excellent. So Aquila is the, is the word for eagle. You think of the eagle. I mean, it's the emblem of emperors, soaring, lofty. It's used as a symbol of divinity. Aquila, the eagle. What about Priscilla? Well, Prisca means ancient or old one. Priscilla is the diminutive form of Prisca. has the idea of being small or little. So here is a woman with a name which means the little old one. Now we don't know whether Priscilla was literally a little old woman or not, but I think that's extraordinary to see the names and the way they operate. And it's also another interesting observation that it's also the older sisters in ecclesial life who are probably the best example. And we can all think with great fondness of the ecclesias we come from, and you think of the role that older sisters play in ecclesial life in their support and nourishing of the ecclesia generally. I think it's remarkable to see the names of those two and the way in which they always worked together in the first century ecclesia. You see, what we find is that woven throughout the divine record, throughout the New Testament, is this wonderful witness to the the faithful role of so many sisters in the preaching of the gospel. It's the spirit of Christ. And blessed indeed is the ecclesia today that abounds with many such sisters. Now, in your mind, you can probably think of a faithful older sister who fulfills these characteristics so well in your ecclesia or you've experienced that in your life. Go and ask that sister who's faithfully labouring in ecclesia life if she finds her role fulfilling or rewarding. I think she'd say she finds it busy, but certainly rewarding. You know, it's such a tragedy when you hear somebody say, you know what, I can see what the scripture says about the role of sisters, but I don't find that very fulfilling. It's not very rewarding for me. It doesn't help me feel as if I'm really going to reach my full potential if I take on that sort of a role. It's a tragedy if we hear that spirit, brothers and sisters, and it's a tragedy on two counts. First of all, it deprives the ecclesia of absolutely essential support and ministration in the ecclesia. And secondly, think of this. The Lord Jesus Christ taught us to be a servant, as he was, and to wash one another's feet. 
So when Christ asks us to wash one another's feet, what are we going to say? Uh, nah, I don't really find that very rewarding. I don't find that very fulfilling. In fact, it's not really going to enable me to reach my full potential. <laughs> you see, brothers and sisters, we're called upon to be servants. That's the spirit of Christ. And this world doesn't find that fulfilling. But a genuine spirit of Christ in Christ's servants does. All right, well, as we contemplate these rather sterling examples in Scripture, a few rather challenging questions arise. Does that mean then that practical caring and support, that sort of service, is the sole measure of the spirituality of our sisters? Is service in and of itself the entire answer? Is that all that's actually required? Now, let's illustrate that for a moment by talking about some extremes. A bustling woman who revels in physically doing things for other people because that's what she needs to do to feel happy. We can see her there. Uh, Her fulfilment in life is absolutely in domestic duties. Sleeves rolled up, brawny arms, hands on hips. The sergeant marshal at arms. She rules the kitchen with a rod of iron and woe betide lesser mortals who cross her in her domain. Well, such women do get things done. And actually, ironically, can also be quite of uh, a lot of help at times in ecclesial life. But I suppose that's not a caricature that many of us would aspire to. In fact, you could probably say that there's something in this woman which would be an impediment to spirituality. So what's the right blend between practical outworking, which is vital and necessary, and the need for a spiritual mind? And what about contributions from women who have different abilities and inclinations? Because actually, we're all different people. Some people are more practical than others. Others are more academic than others. Is it possible for a sister to be both spiritual and practical? Well, we want to to answer this in two parts. The first is to emphasise the point that we've already made before, and that is that sisters have minds which are just as capable of godly thought as the brethren. They are equally as capable of perceiving the beauties of the word of God and giving expression to those in their life and also in their words. And secondly, we then want to have a look at a section of scripture which gives us a rather beautiful illustration of the way in which these things are blended together, a blend of practical service and a spiritual mind. So let's start, first of all, by reiterating this point that our sisters' minds are just as capable of spiritual thought. Now, it might seem strange that we even have to address this. Common sense, logic and observation makes it obvious. I personally regard with with great appreciation and fondness the times in my travels when sisters have come up after a talk and they've just been quietly sharing something and you think, wow, that little gem has just opened up a whole aspect of this this subject that I've never perceived before. They'd spotted it and in in my preparation I hadn't seen it. And I guess all of us can think of examples like that. So our sisters have minds which are just as capable of exploring the beauties of the word as any of the brothers. But it probably needs to be stated because, of course, that then sits alongside the scriptural injunction that it's not their role to to lead in teaching from the platform in formal ecclesial settings. But that doesn't mean that they can't understand as well or have some lesser ability And so we need to to just reassure ourselves, or to to reassert to ourselves, should I say, that the difference in roles does not imply any difference in ability to understand and perceive spiritual things. It's a very interesting article that Brother Roberts wrote in the Christadelphian uh, back in 1897. In fact, I'm a little ashamed to say that this, this first appears in the Diary of a Voyage after a debate which took place between Brother Roberts and an observation that he made of a person in New Zealand. Uh, And this is what he wrote. And afterwards, so it appears first in Diary of a Voyage, and then later he repeated it in the Christadelphian magazine. You can no more suppress a wise woman's influence and a wise woman's voice than you can suppress the law of gravitation. You may prevent her delivering a public address, but you cannot prevent her giving good counsel, and you ought not. Though woman by divine law is in subjection, she is not to be extinguished. 
I have seen tyrannical and unsympathetic men wrongly using Paul's authority to put down and quench godly women more qualified than they themselves to exercise judgment and give counsel. Let women certainly be modest, but let her not be reduced to a cipher which God never intended. We ought to be thankful when women turn up who are able to help with wise suggestions. Those are quite forthright words, aren't they? Brother, Thomas wrote, uh, Brother Roberts wrote them uh, back in the 1890s. So just because it's not their role to teach from the platform does not mean for one moment that they can learn or talk about these principles any less effectively. Now, brothers, we need to understand and respect that. And ironically, sisters, you need to actually remind yourselves of that also because our sisters need the opportunity to develop their minds spiritually just as much as the brothers do. One of the challenges that our sisters have is in trying to find the time, particularly, for example, for those who are mothers who seem to be on duty 24 hours a day. But scriptures abound with examples of spiritually minded sisters. So it's important that our sisters have the opportunity to make sure that their minds are fed and grow spiritually as well. You see, what it means is that spiritual discernment is a character-based thing. It's not a gender-based thing. There are wise men and foolish men. There are wise women and foolish women. The book of Proverbs makes that abundantly clear. All right, well, let's look at the example and the evidence of Scripture. First of all, remember again what we looked at in Genesis chapter 1. Both male and female were made in the image and likeness of the Elohim. They have the ability to understand and reflect the glory of the divine creator. That gives us a pretty solid start. All right, let's stop for a moment and think about the various songs and prayers of women that are recorded in Scripture. The fact is, these women were undoubtedly spirit-guided. They were inspired in those songs and prayers. And what they recorded is extremely rich in the way in which it draws on elements of scripture and also on the other songs of women. And they become a beautiful illustration of the work of inspiration guiding spiritual minds. Um, just looking at the time. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's when we've got to finish? 11. Okay, I think we're okay then. Uh, let's go and have a quick look. No, I'm going to refer to Hannah's song and then we're going to look at the, uh, at the words of Mary. Okay, we won't turn this one up, but first of Samuel chapter 2, um, verses 1 and then also through to verse 7 and 9. As you read through the song of Hannah, it reads just like one of the Psalms. There's an extraordinary amount of prophecy that's in, that, in, that, in that, uh, that song of Hannah's as well. It's a beautiful passage of scripture, but it's also the prayer of a faithful woman rejoicing in the fact that she's just been blessed with the birth of a child. Her prayers have been answered by, the, by God himself. Let's turn up now to, uh, to, to Luke chapter 1, because what we find is that that prayer is drawn on by Mary, the Lord's mother, in her expression of praise. Luke chapter 1. Okay, so Mary has come and she's visited her, um, her cousin, Elizabeth, in verse 41. In verse 46, after Elizabeth's response, Mary says, in verse 46, My soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. He that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. His mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imaginations of their heart. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Actually, if we have the time to go through and study 
these words of Mary, this song or this prayer of Mary, we find that it draws on many other elements of scripture, including, for example, the words of Hannah from 1st of Samuel. It is a glorious section of scripture. Now, is it true to say that these women spake under inspiration? Well, we get little hints, for example, like verse 41. When Mary came in, it says, It came to pass, when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she spake with a loud voice. It makes it rather clear, doesn't it? So here was some sisters that were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak on that particular occasion. Think also of the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. Quoting from Joel, he says, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit. The implication is that the sisters also partook in certain circumstances of the Holy Spirit gifts. So, for example, that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, it speaks of women prophesying and the need for their head to be covered when they did so. Nevertheless, we must understand this very important point. When they received the gifts, they were possessed and used in conformity with strict divine teaching. Even being inspired by the Holy Spirit did not change the divinely ordained order of things in ecclesial life. So the gifts they had appear to have been limited both in scope and also in the place of engagement. The gift of prophecy, that's being used by God to become a voice piece, to become a direct conveyance of God's words to others. We actually know that sometimes the prophets didn't even know or understand what they were speaking about themselves. We know that, for example, from the statement by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 to 12. Now that's quite different from the gifts of teaching or the gifts of governance or the gift of interpreting, which are other gifts that were possessed by brethren. And we know that even those that had the gift of prophecy did not use those abilities to lead and teach the ecclesia in a formal setting. Because the Apostle Paul goes on to say a few chapters later, As for the women in the assemblies, this is reading from Rotherham, as for the women in the assemblies, let them be silent, for it is not permitted them to be speaking, but let them be in submission, even as the law saith. Now, ironically, the very examples I've just referred to are sometimes used, and particularly in Christianity, to say, well, see, these women were just as good as the men, as a justification for the fact that they should be on the platform, as it were today, leading in worship. Because clearly, in those days, they had the Holy Spirit gifts. Ironically, if you think about it, these passages actually prove exactly the opposite. Even those sisters, wonderfully spiritual and spirit-gifted as well, were not speaking formally in the Ecclesia. So doesn't that make the point rather obvious? If they were spirit-gifted and yet the Apostle said that they were not to lead in ecclesial teaching, then doesn't that make it obvious that the same principles apply in ecclesial life? Now, all right, well now we're going to get to a challenging bit, and it is actually quite challenging. On one hand we say, well, sisters are, are just as capable of wonderful, rich spiritual thinking and expression, and on the other hand, they've got a God-given and special role of, spiritual, of, of service and administration, So how do you manage to satisfy both? First of all, how do sisters manage to express that ability when they don't get the same opportunity as the brothers do, when they have ecclesial activities to lead? And secondly, how do they fit it into their day? Because I don't know about you, but my observation of the role of our sisters is that they are extremely busy in daily life. So how is there room to develop spiritual understanding and a good spiritual mind at the same time? How do we juggle those things? And every sister who is trying to run a household and develop spiritually at the same time understands the challenge and the difficulty that that represents. Now we all know that there's no substitute for time spent reading and thinking about God's word. So it's going to be up to us, husbands and wives together, 
to try and work on strategies in each of our own personal homes to help provide the opportunity for our sisters to have their minds spiritually strengthened and developed and at the same time cope with the pragmatic realities of life. Now, brothers, this is particularly where we need to become involved because we can make an enormous difference by the extent of our support to help our sister wives in that regard. And by the way, brothers, that support, practical support, doesn't mean us saying, I wish you were more spiritual, you should be doing some of your own personal study. And just heaping that on top of all the other burdens which they have in daily life. No, what we should be doing is sitting down and discussing together how we can actually provide that support and help and help provide the time. Now, of course, every household's different and the dynamics of every household are different. But what really is important is for us to sit down together and work out, well, how can we make sure that this gets achieved in our home and in our family? Now, of course, the single most important key is the daily Bible readings. There is no substitute for a family taking in the Word of God on a daily basis. You know, it might only be, depending on where the family's at, it might only be one reading together in the evening. But putting that time aside... And husbands, your role in helping support that is extremely important. Putting that time aside for the whole family to have their minds strengthened and stimulated in the word together, there is no substitute for that. And sisters, it might be that there is some other moment of time in your day that you can snatch to be able to get one of the other readings done or to read a book or to have something which is able to provide that strength and that spiritual sustenance which you personally need yourself as well getting along to sister's class. It might be taking turns to get to Bible class. Or better still, and this can be quite a challenge, but better still, get the whole family out to Bible class so that you've all shared the same uh, discussion and interest in the word and the topic together. And another thing that I've been really impressed in observing over the years, really impressed with, is watching the way in which sisters support sisters. It's extraordinary the way that sisters support sisters in ecclesial life. The little comment, the little supportive text, even catching up with them in the morning for coffee to have a chat and to see how they're going. Or, I'll pick up your children after school today because I know you've got such and such happening. Just the little things that sisters do to help sisters. And it's amazing how practical support somehow turns out to be very spiritually strengthening. It's very impressive to watch the way in which that happens in our community. But still the challenge remains, how do we juggle all of these conflicting demands in a busy life? Well, there's a really interesting story in Scripture, and it highlights some of these principles for us in that regard. And it's actually it's an extremely insightful illustration to this blend of, of service, practical service, and also the priority of a mind that's developed spiritually. This, this story involves an interplay between two wonderful but not perfect people. Both of them were actually very spiritual people. They had an outstanding faith and a remarkable understanding of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of them dearly loved Christ, and both of them were dearly loved by him. And it's the story of Mary and Martha. Now, our Lord's attitude towards them is summed up by these words, John 11, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, the reason for that is obvious. We find in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, the Lord comes to Bethany, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. So she and her sister Mary provide a haven of rest for the Son of Man, who did not have anywhere to lay his head. And actually, particularly, it's right towards the end of his ministry. So as things were becoming incredibly intense for our Lord, as his sacrifice was drawing nigh, so that little household in Bethany provided support for him. Now, Martha was a woman of outstanding perception and faith. There's a remarkable declaration of her faith in John 11. It's in the context of the fact that her brother has just died. And she says to the Lord, I know he'll be raised in the last days. She's confident about the resurrection. She has a belief in the resurrection and that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. In fact, her declaration is often compared to the declaration that Peter himself had made earlier. 
Now, it's important for us to understand that she was a woman of outstanding faith and spiritual perception and insight. Because now we're going to meet her in a slightly different context, in a slightly different incident that took place in that home. I'd like you to come with me to Luke chapter 10. You see, the event that's recorded in Luke chapter 10 would paint her in a slightly different light if we weren't aware of that particular background. It's the time, and we're familiar with the story, it's the time when Martha was rebuked for being careful of many things. Luke chapter 10. Let's read from verse 38 through to 42. Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving. And came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Now, as Brother Melva Perkis points out in his book, A Life of Jesus, we need to be careful here that we don't try and put Mary and Martha into two different little boxes as opposites, to try and distinguish between a practical Martha box and a spiritual Mary box sitting far apart. That's far too simplistic. Human beings are much more complex characters than that. As we've seen, Martha, whilst she may have been here, busy with practical things, at other times gives a remarkable declaration of her faith in the teachings and the doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ. Conversely, Mary, whilst here she's sitting listening to Christ's words, rather than being involved in the practical process of serving and administering to his daily needs, nevertheless, at another time, rendered amazing service. The Lord Jesus Christ encourages the disciples to wash one another's feet. She washed his feet, and also his head, actually, with, anoint- with ointment. Uh, we find that in Matthew 26, verse 7, she anointed the Lord's head. And in John 12, verse 3, we're told it was also his feet. And she, she literally demonstrated this exhortation to wash one another's feet. Except, of course, that she was doing it with hugely expensive ointments, and she did it for his burial, her understanding of those principles. So what we see in both of these characters is a blend, and yet it plays itself out in different ways according to their characters. You see, it's far too easy for us to say in ecclesial life, well, I'm the practical type. So I'll do practical things to help in ecclesial life. Don't ever expect me to bother my head about those deep spiritual things or to have a good mind for the scripture. Or conversely, well, I'll I'll give my time to the Bible and and to reading and to to thinking things and, and sharing those things with other people. But don't ever expect me to lift a hand to help anybody else in practical issues of ecclesial life. I'm not the practical type, so those ministering duties are not for me. You see, brothers and sisters, we can't excuse ourselves like that. Our understanding of all the principles of the truth gets outworked in the way in which we interact in our service with our brothers and sisters as a whole. As the Apostle as James puts it in his epistle, by works is faith made perfect. Now what we find actually is that both of these women are able to do both, but they do it in different ways and at different times according to their character and their abilities. Now this little interchange here in Luke chapter 10 is quite helpful because here one of these women unusually got it wrong for a moment. And so the Lord lovingly rebukes her for her good and also for our edification as we come along to read it. Okay, so Martha comes bursting in and she interrupts the Lord mid-flow. Lord, don't you care? Mary should be helping me out the back. So what's actually happening here? Well, those little words there in verse 40 are very insightful. It says she was cumbered 
about much serving. Rotherham's translates that she was distracted about much ministering. Ah, here is a very interesting principle for all of us. We have to be so careful, brothers and sisters, that our practical ministrations in ecclesial life don't distract us from the things that really matter, even when those practical ministrations are being done for Christ. Now, that's so important for us to keep in mind in ecclesial life. All the vast array of administrative necessities that are so essential for the ecclesia to function, we need to make sure that they don't distract us from the more important things of life, that we don't get distracted about much ministering. In other words, we should never let our duties create a spiritual desert. It's astonishing, isn't it, how the mundane things of life just take over, our busyness in ecclesial life. All the things that have to be done in ecclesial life or whatever, whatever aspect of ecclesial life we might be involved in, how quickly those practical things that need to be done can become all-consuming with the workloads that they create. So here's an interesting little insight in this, in this record here, not to let the practical necessities overtake our spiritual values. All right, so the Lord arrives in, he's welcomed in, and he sits down to rest, And Mary comes in and she sits down at his feet and she's listening as he starts to speak. She's hearing his word as it's described in verse 39. Now after a while, Martha becomes rather conscious of the fact that Mary, her sister, is not helping her. Now sisters, can you imagine the slight resentment that just starts to bubble away in the back of her mind? Here I am, I'm doing this really important work, and it's a big job. There's, there's lots of people here this evening. It's quite a large meal. I'm working hard here. It's being done for the Lord anyway, and my sister's not helping me, which is actually not fair, and I'm under pressure, and things aren't going well. The potatoes have just boiled over because she wasn't here looking after them, and what's she doing out there anyway? I want to be there listening to Christ too. Can you see how these things just slowly build up until, in the end, they completely overwhelm us? And in the end, she broke into Jesus' discussion and evening rest with these words. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? She's accused the Lord of being uncaring. Oops. She stopped him... In the work that he came to do. Oops. She's actually said that her work is more important than his. Oops. You know, if we put it to her like that, she would be absolutely horrified. But that's actually exactly what happened. It's something that we all have to be so careful of. You know, when we become emotionally wound up about something, our perspectives... And our objectivity just seems to go out of the window, doesn't it? And everything then starts to be driven by how it affects us and and how we feel about something that's happening. You know, we don't even realise often when we're doing it. And sisters, it is something that sisters can be particularly vulnerable to. The same emotional sensitivities that are some of your greatest strengths can also be a susceptibility. And you can see how this has built up in her mind... Until in the end, it's just come bursting out. So we need to be very careful how emotions can distort our responses. As we become all hit up about something, we stew up about something, we let it take over our thoughts, and then suddenly it becomes all-consuming. It's human. We can all do it, and it's something we need to spot and resist, because it's a very common human failing. Wouldn't it be uncomfortable if some of our little outbursts saw the light of day in the same way that this little interchange has? Just imagine, in that split second, caught in the camera frame, frozen for all time, and then recorded for all posterity to read and analyse. Our little outbursts. Because that's actually what's happened here. It's captured here for us to look at and identify with and learn something from. And herein, brothers and sisters, lies the lesson. That when we're working in the Lord's service, and it might be in personal 
or family or ecclesial life, let's always understand that the work that we're doing is not an end in itself. And that that little niggle of human pride, which is so satisfied with my contribution to the service of the Lord, needs to be kept in check. So we need to understand that our work of service is being done with a true, or needs to be done with a true understanding of what the objective really is, what it's trying to accomplish. The service roles that we fulfil are just a means to an end. They're not an end in itself. Now, Brother Melva Perkis, in his book, has an excellent closing lesson for us from this little incident. He says, but a great lesson emerges, one which no disciple can afford to miss. It has a wider application than the love of two women. It takes us beyond the oven and the kitchen sink, though it by no means excludes them. It is the lesson that all service for Christ begins at his feet. There... Learning of him and understanding what he requires of us, our hearts are filled with the glow of his joy and the serenity of his peace. Only then can we arise and serve him in that quiet confidence and love which will guard us from self-righteousness and pride. All our service for Christ begins at his feet.